Mighty Lord, we come before you asking that you would aid us by your Holy Spirit, by his unction and power, the ministry of the word, as we look at Genesis, as we think through the righteousness of the Almighty God, as we think about your sovereign power over the lives of men, we pray, O God, that you administer your truth to us, that we might regard you as the righteous God that you are. Let us be thoughtful concerning it. Let us hear well that the preaching be done in your power, and let this be, O Lord, a ministry to our hearts, that we might carry this around this week, thinking through how righteous you are and how you attend to us. And we so ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read together, follow along, Genesis 18, verses 16 to the end of the chapter. Then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came there and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it for you to do such a thing as this to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there are five less than fifty righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? So he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again, and said, Suppose there should be forty found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Indeed now I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of twenty. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Interesting that at this particular point, We've already had the three visitors. They disclose themselves. The Lord discloses himself that the singular God is in his midst. 
though interestingly enough, there are three of them. Two of them, as we find, we'll see when we look at Genesis 19, that they are angels that go to do the Lord's bidding in Sodom. And yet, here, we find the reason for their journey, the reason why they come to Abraham. The Lord speaks to him in verses 16 to 22 and has a conversation with him. God begins to address Abraham and inform him of what he is about to do. Abraham is going to be the father of many nations. And since God is going to take one of these nations away from him, he is going to inform Abraham why he will not be the father of it. God says he knows Abraham. Literally, it says, I have chosen. Literally, I have known you. So I am going to make known to you what I am about to do. And the use of to know in the sense here is of he has chosen him. He has elected him. He has known him intimately. If the ground of election was God's promise, its fuller purpose is now stated for the first time. To create a God-fearing community. This is why God knew Abraham. This is why he called them out. He's going to be the father of these nations. He's going to have Abraham as the catalyst to create this covenant family. In 1711, the future obligation placed on Abraham's descendants appeared to be limited to the duty of circumcision. But here, he's told to command his sons to do righteousness. The obligation of instructing children is constantly reiterated throughout the scriptures. Exodus 12 and Deuteronomy 6, all through Proverbs and the wisdom literature there. In Job, observing the Lord's way is equated with observing his commands. It's identified with doing that which is righteous. So the righteous God shows up. The righteous God instructs Abraham that he is to teach his covenant family to do righteousness. And we find in the midst of him being the father of many nations that there is this nation that's not doing righteousness. Now, why would God tell us he knows Abraham? Doesn't he know everything? Well, certainly he does. If he doesn't, well, then he isn't God. To be known is to have an intimate relationship with him. The word is used in all of the accounts of the covenant situation that God has with his elect people. His condescension is very great. He is in a position, that is, Abraham is in a position to be trusted as one who is known by God. Those whom God knows have a very unique responsibility to commit to their children the ways of God. And this stands in direct contrast to the actions of this wicked nation, Sodom and Gomorrah. They are to do righteousness. They are to decide to do things according to the truth without any partiality. And... They are to be just. They are to do righteousness and justice, what God instructs them. And justice is a reflection of one of the most important attributes of God, which we could study throughout the scriptures, which refers to the outworking of being righteous. 
God tells him in this preface, what is he about to reveal to the nation of Sodom? He tells Abraham. There are a variety of questions posed in the passage about a number of things. God's knowledge, what he's going to do, this is the first. The outcry of Sodom is great. And thus God is going to go down and take notice of the situation. A cry is coming up before his face. Their sin is very great. And the meaning behind that is that it's very severe. It's very heavy. It's exceedingly intense. Calvin commented here that he says, But when we perceive that the anger of God is provoked by the sin of man, men should be inspired with a dread towards sinning. Even Abraham at this point should be inspired with a dread to be in the righteous presence of God because God is about to judge the wickedness that has come up before him. In verse 21, where it says God is going to go down to see what's going on there, it's reminiscent of the Tower of Babel, where God went down to look. God says he's going to go down to see if this is all really true. And if it is, he will know. Well, does God know everything? Of course he does. Certainly he does. Why does he say this that way? Why does he say, Adam, where are you? Why does he say, I'm going to go down and see what these little Babylonians are doing in building their building? Why does he say he's going to go down to see if all this is really true? Well, we know that God has already planned to destroy Sodom. We can see this in chapter 19, verse 13, where the angels say that they've come to destroy it. So we know that that's already the case. They were already going down when Abraham was talking with God, but God uses this time to prompt Abraham and see whether or not he will expect of him and that Abraham will deliver as a teacher of righteousness, as a teacher of justice, as one who's going to do with his family what Sodom and Gomorrah have not done. Is he going to be righteous and just? And he's going to act righteously and justly. And interestingly enough, the very conversation that he has, the barter of sorts, is exactly what God prompts from him, is exactly what Abraham should have done. The angels leave, and Abraham acts righteously. We see the angels leaving for Sodom. They're going to carry out their mission. The Lord stays, and Abraham approaches God to inquire of God's motives. I am but dust and ashes. Who am I to question you, Lord? But, and so he does. Will God destroy the righteous with the wicked? This is an unrighteous thing to do. And it is an unrighteous thing to do. If God were to do it, it would be unrighteous. The righteous are those who walk the straight path. The wicked are the deviants. The Hebrew idea of righteousness means to walk along the straight and narrow path. To go to the right or go to the left, as you, as you hear it says so many times in the, in, throughout the scripture. That's the deviants going off that straight line. It would be unjust for God to destroy the ones who are on the straight line, who are on the path, who are righteous, along with the ones who are deviant from it. The righteous would be as the wicked. And so Abraham says, far be it for that to be the case. God should not treat the wicked and the righteous 
in the same way. This is not going to be just a little judgment. They will be destroyed. Literally, they will be swept away and consumed. And Abraham is concerned. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. He intercedes for them. Many times, preachers see this passage as a paradigm for intercession. But the thrust of the passage is not intercession, not even in the part where Abraham intercedes. The scope of the passage is really on the righteousness of God and whether or not God will be righteous and whether or not man will conform to what God desires of him. He pleads for the people. And after the plea of ten righteous men, the Lord departs. And Abraham goes back to his tent. Will God be just? Yes. God will be just. God will be righteous. This is the point. God will be righteous. Even if there's ten there, he won't destroy the city for the sake of ten. He will not be unrighteous in any of his actions. Abraham put the case so strongly against the indiscriminate slaughter of the righteous that every reader has to wonder at this point what God will do if there are fewer than ten righteous in Sodom. And that's the way that the Holy Spirit and carried along Moses to write the passage. Moses is aware of the problem. The next few scenes set in the city itself will show that there are no righteous in Sodom at all, except for Lot, who is only a sojourner there and not a full citizen, as we'll find out in 19.9. In interceding for Sodom, Abraham is portrayed as fulfilling a role that is particularly associated with being a prophet. God is not only just, Abraham knows he's merciful, he intercedes, but he wants to be sure that God will act justly because he knows that lot is there. Though Abraham pleads for the righteous, he is also very satisfied that God will do all that is righteous. And so God departs and Abraham goes back to his tent. Now the Doctrine that we want to pull out of this is really to understand the righteousness of God. That straight line. In contrast to the wickedness which is missing the mark. If we could very easily give a definition of righteousness, it's basically following the moral law perfectly. Sin is not following it perfectly. Righteousness results as a result of keeping the law. And the law is simply a reflection of who God is. If someone were to take the Ten Commandments and they were to keep all of God's righteous laws perfectly, they would be like God. The law is like a pair of glasses which can demonstrate to a person the least spot or stain even upon a man's thoughts, much less a demonstration of his actions. It is a glass that demonstrates to us how sin relates to holiness in all its dimensions. The gospel is no gospel without an understanding of the law which demonstrates the righteousness of God, which is why there is a gospel. The law is the matter, it's the substance of the covenant of works that God placed Adam in 
that Adam was to do this and live. And the creation law binds all men to be righteous, but men are fallen. And unless God powerfully changes their hearts, then they will continue to have such an outcry as Sodom and Gomorrah before God. Making the righteousness of God crooked and rejecting his ways and rejecting his law and going another is sin, it's evil, it's wicked. And this is the outcry that comes up from the city of Sodom before his face. Not only does God virtuously uphold the moral law because it's a reflection of his character, it is what he is. He is the only one who can give it. He's the only one who can command it to others because it's a reflection of his nature. God's nature is to be just in all things. It's an attribute which emerges from his holiness. And think of it this way. Imagine if all the evidence of a case was given and the jury pronounced a particular person innocent. But the judge overturned it, knowing full well that the person was innocent and pronounced him guilty anyway. That would be outrageous. It would be all over the news. It would be constantly in, in our faces in every newspaper, on every television station until it was fixed. God is always just in all of his dealings with his creatures. If the jury was wrong, God would correct them to be right. The judge would not do something unjust. The righteousness of God is a blessed thing. For who would want to serve and who would want to worship a crooked God? We would want to serve a just God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Deuteronomy 32.4 Imagine if God could change his judgments about us or about things. God would be very unjust to go back on his word. Imagine if he went back on his word concerning our salvation. Righteousness is vitally linked to the word of God and the promises of God because out of God's righteousness, he makes irreversible judgments which are carried out. And every judgment that he makes is totally and completely upright. He never makes a mistake in any situation, in any judgment, for any reason. For example, sometimes people think that Adam was the wrong choice because Adam fell. And that oftentimes when you speak to people that way, who think that, they think that they could have done a better job than Adam, thus implying that God should have placed them in such a position. And think about that. A fallen person who's filled with iniquity and sin believes that they could make a better and more righteous action than Adam, who is perfect and not fallen, and God's choice in the garden. This is why God tells Abraham what he's about to do. He had promised Abraham to be the father of nations, and it is just, it's right, it's righteous for God to show Abraham that Sodom should be justly destroyed because they have infringed on his righteousness and will not be part of the covenant community. They are mature sinners, and their time was up. 
Psalm 19.9 says, The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So God's judgment was right in coming upon Sodom at this particular time. And yet, it was a particular time. Which is why stating it this way, that they are mature sinners, is a very good way of describing the way God's judgments works. Paul says very much the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 2.16 when he says, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. At a particular time, men's sins reach their appointed mark. As he said to his servants that the sins of the Amorites were not yet full. Not yet. There is a particular point when God will say, here and no more. And then will bring upon a righteous judgment to them. And it's a very scary thing, this righteousness of God being right and perfect and without any sin and having to conform to such things and having the moral law demonstrate God's character to us because the wrath of God is also linked to his righteousness. He says he's going down and going down and viewing Sodom, going down throughout the scriptures is often associated with hell. Heaven is up. Hell is down. We do not like to think about the wrath of God. But the Hebrew and the Greek scriptures use over 20 words which talk about the various manifestations of the wrath of God. Think about how many words we have for love. Three, four. That's 20 ways in which to bring forth the idea of wrath in a righteous judgment of God. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. He will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Psalm 7, 11 to 13. The Bible never portrays God as the great grandfather in the sky. He portrays God as the righteous one. He's not the God who sits up in the clouds and loves everyone. He hates the wicked, as the psalm says. Not the wicked's works, which he hates, but also the wicked them themselves. Malachi 1, 2-3, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Echoed in Romans, demonstrating the work of God in election. Lest I remind you, people often try to justify this verse with their idea of God and say, well, he hates Esau's sin. But it doesn't say Esau's sin. Whatever you're going to add on the latter part of the verse, you have to add in the former part of the verse because it's a Hebrew parallelism. Jacob's sin I love and Esau's sin I hate. Well, that doesn't work. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. It has nothing to do with their sin. It has nothing to do with their works. So Paul explains in Romans 9. Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Psalm 71, 19. Also your righteousness, O God, is very high. You who have done great things. O God, who is like you? God should punish sin. That is what people who make God to be the big grandfather don't want him to do. They want God to compromise his righteousness for their feelings. Right? But the righteousness of God must be reflected in a righteous covenant community, which he comes to Abraham, which he tells him, 
that one of these nations, of which he will be the father of many nations, but not this one, demonstrates their failure to uphold his righteousness. Abraham must teach his children to do so, that they will not wind up in the very same way soteriology, soteriologically this way, with Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, when we're dealing with Genesis 17, and we're dealing with what God is speaking with Abraham about and teaching their children and walking blameless and righteously and circumcision and all of these things that he wants to do them in the covenant community, he's talking about the ecclesiastical nature of the covenant community. Here, he has discontinued to do so, and he parallels the two. Sodom and Gomorrah are not doing what the covenant community should do. You must teach your children otherwise. Otherwise they will wind up in the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. So the righteousness of God must be reflected in a righteous covenant community. And part of the examination with Abraham was to see if he would be righteous, to demonstrate to us if he would. And Abraham, being justified by God and made righteous by his grace, knows that God would be unjust if he allowed the righteous in Sodom to be destroyed with the wicked. God would be unjust that way. And so we find the barter between the two of them, Abraham interceding, and Abraham desires righteousness. He does not desire the rescue of Sodom. Nowhere. Kind of a strange evangelism. Abraham has a very strange idea about what evangelism is about, doesn't he? I mean, what would the church do today? They would say, wait, wait, Lord. Let us go in there and speak to the people. Let us go in there and do what we need to do. Let's see if we can win a few souls. Let's go out. And... Abraham wasn't even thinking about that. That's not where it was going. What he didn't want God to do was he didn't want the righteous in the city destroyed along with the wicked. The righteous want and desire righteousness. They love the just judgment of God. Sometimes they don't see the whole picture, like Abraham didn't see necessarily the whole picture of what was going on, so he bartered with God, saying that there's only ten. Don't destroy it for ten. But they want and desire righteousness. And the righteous are confident about their righteousness because of what God has done. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. Can you imagine saying that to God? Psalm 26.2 A prayer to be tested in the Christian walk. It's how people act around the dirty jokes at work or the coarse jesting among the unsaved family members or whatever particular situation we happen to be in. God will try his people, wants to know if they desire and want righteousness. God requires righteous behavior from those who claim to be righteous. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Proverbs 21.3 Old Testament isn't it? He doesn't want sacrifice. He wants righteousness and justice. The law leading to Christ serves the gospel, and the gospel serves the law by fulfilling it. The law is not a bad thing, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 1 Timothy 1.8 Abraham would have proved he was not righteous if after God has prefaced the conversation that Abraham would have said nothing. God says righteous people teach. And to teach this righteousness, you have to have a passion for it. Abraham could not have just stood there knowing the righteous lot was living in Sodom. 
Interesting? That's interesting in and of itself. Righteous Lot living in the midst of Sodom, vexing his soul, Peter says, every day by their wickedness. And knowing what other righteous men, many may be living there as well, Abraham didn't know, so he didn't want unrighteousness to prevail. Godly people do not let unrighteousness prevail. So in thinking about the righteousness of God that way, we ask this question then to ourselves, what makes us righteous then in the sight of God? Well, what made Abraham righteous in God's sight? The righteousness which Christians have is directly a result of the work of God. Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, it is not your righteousness that makes you righteous because you're filthy and you're sinful and you can't be righteous in and of yourself. There are five elements in this verse that apply. Christ, the power of God, faith, the righteousness of God, and the wrath of God. Christ has to come and die for sin so that people can be righteous. They are imputed with his righteousness. Jesus was perfectly righteous. And being God, he was able to satisfy God's wrath. He dies and is raised from the dead. And now intercedes the high priest, the great prophet, for us. Then God removes the sin of the individual, placing it upon Christ and punishing Christ for that sin instead of the person. So our sin is imputed to him. His righteousness is imputed to us. Then the power of God regenerates the heart so that a person can believe. And then is given faith. Faith to believe that Jesus really does these things. God imputes to the person the righteousness of Christ, like a white robe that covers our rebellious hearts. And he judges the person as righteous because of Christ's righteousness, which is our covering. And when we die, God will see either one of two things. He will either see us or he will see Christ's righteousness. If he sees us, we're in trouble. If he sees Christ's righteousness, we will be regarded as perfectly holy. If we don't have Christ's righteousness, Judgment Day will be a day of utter horror for us. Because the indignation and wrath of God will be upon us because of our sin. If I were to pick the scariest verse in the Bible concerning the righteousness of God and its implications, I would have to choose Revelation chapter 6, 15 to 17. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne 
and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Only those robed in white. Only them. Sodom is not going to stand because of their sin. Unless the Lord of the Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Romans 9.29 Jude 1, 6 and 7 And the angels who did not keep their proper dominion but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for judgment of the great day as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Christ is the judge. Christ is the jury. Christ is the executioner on that day, and no one is exempt from standing before him, Christians and non-Christians alike. They will all stand before him. John 5.30, As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of my Father who sent me. Romans 14.10, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. What we will do will be rewarded or judged lacking. If we have been righteous, we shall enter into heavenly bliss. If we have been wicked, we will burn under the wrath of the Lamb. And people take this so lightly and think that they could never be subject to God's wrath. They don't take it heavily, solemnly. James 5.9, talking to the church, says, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Hebrews 10.30 and 31, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, which is why Paul exhorts us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And Jesus says in Matthew 10, And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that day. He will not destroy the righteous with the wicked, but who are the righteous? They are those who make up the covenant community. Those who are made as one who he knows. God destroys those who are mature in sin. Here Abraham, the righteous, addressed the Lord by saying he's dust and ashes and he's unworthy to speak. But Christians, we're to be righteous in all that we do, exemplifying the straight path of the Lord that we might manifest righteousness in our life how is the righteousness of God manifested in your life Psalm 58 11 surely there is a reward for the righteous and our perception of what is just is often not like what God's is when we must be conformed daily to his righteous standards not our own we often say that we do good things or honorable things but what do we manifest in our life that is righteous and just in the sight of God now, we cannot give the excuse, unless you want to act like Sodom and Gomorrah, 
that we're sinners and we can't perform righteous deeds. This is where God in this passage is demonstrating a difference in line. A difference between Sodom and Gomorrah and a difference between who Abraham and those he will teach to be just and righteous are. So we can't give the excuse that we're sinners and we can't do good and it's just the way it goes. God will have to excuse us. That's what the pagan says. That's what the pagan hopes. Well, I'm relatively a good person. I'm not perfect, but God will let me in. We ask, do we have the spirit of Christ? In question 35 of the larger catechism, it says, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. All Christians have the capability through the power of God's righteousness which dwells in us to accomplish a degree of righteousness in this life if the Spirit dwells in us. No excuses. We have no excuses not to act righteously. At Judgment Day, that is the list that God will give. What did you do as a Christian? All the righteous deeds will reap the great reward, but many of us will weep to see all the time spent on meaningless activities, idle thoughts, vain ideas. Everything will be exposed. Sodom's sin had come up before God's face, and all our deeds will come up before his face. And in his sight. And God will weigh us in the balance of justice according to his perfect righteousness. If we have the robe of Christ's righteousness on us, we will be declared righteous and just. But he is righteous. And he must judge everything. And nothing will be hidden. What does the Lord require of thee? The prophet asked. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So why Ecclesiastes, in looking at the entirety of the Christian life, looking at the entirety of a life between a God-fear and his God, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. This is his just judgment. This is where it all comes down. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So what do I do? What do you do? We are to be diligent in our journey for sanctification. And we must be like Abraham. We must act justly. We must be concerned about the righteousness of God in our daily life, in the words we speak, in the thoughts we have, in everything we do. We are to be diligent in that journey. Pastors cannot make you sanctified. Sunday school teachers cannot make you sanctified. Spouses and relatives can't make you sanctified. Each other. You cannot pull out a magic wand and zap the other and make them sanctified. But God sanctifies us. God is the one who does that through the Spirit in us. And we must have in the forefront of our mind, as God so instructs his prophet Abraham, that he, the teaching his family, those in the covenant community to be righteous, to do that which reflects the character of God. Because God is righteous in everything that he does and will judge unrighteousness. We are safe and there's safety on the day of judgment having Christ's robe of righteousness around us. Yet, 
throughout our life, if we know God and if he knows us, as Paul says, if you are known by God, then we will do righteousness and we are obliged to follow the righteousness of God if we claim the name. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say, Jesus asks in Luke 13. Why do you do that? It demonstrates a hypocrite. Abraham was no hypocrite. He was the father of our faith. And in the demonstration of his righteous behavior before God, so we must mimic him. This passage, Genesis 18, demonstrates the righteousness of God and his righteous actions against sin and how those who claim to be in covenant with him will act righteously as well. This is what Abraham does. This is what we must do as well. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would aid us in this. Mighty God, we give ourselves over to you. We lay ourselves at your feet. We come boldly before the throne of grace, and yet at the same time we pronounce ourselves unclean. Lord, we know that we are unrighteous and we don't do what we should. We don't think what we should. We don't act the way we should. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the robe of the righteousness of Christ and his perfect act of obedience and living the law perfectly in every moment, in every way, with every thought and every deed. And that passive righteousness which took upon the wrath of God for us. And we so thank you, Lord, that we have that double cure. That he takes our sin and we receive his righteousness, which is a demonstration and reflection of your righteousness. And we so pray, O oh God, that you would continue to remind us why we should be righteous simply because you are righteous. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the holy God. You don't change your mind. You cannot deny yourself. The gifts that you give us are irrevocable. And we thank you, O Lord, that you have given us the righteousness of God as our robe that makes us clean. And you have pronounced and declared us perfect. We cannot be, O Lord, any more perfect than we are right now before you because of what Jesus has done. He was perfect. We so ask that you would simply help us, Lord, day by day to destroy the remnants of remaining sin, that we might be conformed to the image of the perfection of God's righteousness in Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta 
abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.